as featured on Ghost Hunters Season 7, and also featured on Travel Channel's Most Terrifying Places in America, you might find Morris Mill, just outside of St. Louis, Missouri. Have you heard the story of the hauntings and history of Morris Mill? From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. First off, Morris Mill, uh, as I mentioned, was featured in uh, Ghost Hunters. That was uh, November 30th, 2011. Travel channels listed as most terrifying places in America. Uh, the mill is located in Jefferson County, Missouri. Uh, that's near the small town of Hillsboro, just west of St. Louis. Interesting little fact, uh, before we get into all the history, is going back to the earliest history, Jefferson County itself was founded back in 1799 by a man by the name of Francis Wideman, who was believed by many to be a sorcerer. Uh, according to his own brother, John, uh, he could conjure up the devil. Uh, kind of creepy right off the bat. The original building was constructed in 1816 as a farmhouse, uh, while the area was still ruled by the Spanish under the Louisiana Territory. John H. Morse purchased the structure in 1856, about 50 years later, and added to the structure that is now 5,300 square feet that you will find today. Now, Mr. Morse was a bridge engineer and a Confederate sympathizer. He built a commercial grist mill right there on the adjacent Big River. He also built the nearby iron bridge that crosses the Big River, which you can still cross by foot today. All right, makes because he was a bridge engineer, that makes perfectly good sense. He was said to have used slave labor to quarry the stones for the building, and he would actually go on to become a state politician, uh, owning at least two general stores, a contracting company, and a hotel. Uh, the home itself was a frequent stagecoach stop, and even after his death, it was a very popular Riverside Hotel for a retreat. Now, the Morris Mill has went through several changes in its life. Uh, it has been all of these things, a private home, a speakeasy, a brothel, a Confederate hospital, underground railroad stop, possibly on an Indian burial site, multiple murder scene locations, scene of multiple hangings, a Confederate rebel safe home, crime scene of several murders, a post office, and a halfway home. Definitely got a, a storied past. Oh my goodness. Transformation. Now, about visitors, during its main heyday, which I would consider 1920 to 1930s, the most elite of St. Louis often visited here. It was a close enough spot for a weekend retreat from the sweltering summers of St. Louis, where they enjoyed cool spring waters that fed the big river that flowed alongside of the hotel. The guests, however, even at that time, was from all over the world. Yeah, they would, uh, they would have guests from... From such varied places as Africa, Switzerland, Cuba, 
the Philippines, Bombay, India, London, England, Berlin, Germany, Austria, and Hong Kong. Exactly. All over the world. Now, I will say, one of the most interesting entries there in the guest books, which they still have a lot of the originals, was uh, from the time frame of September 5th, 1931, and it was labeled as Zarna and her <laughs> trained seal Suzanne uh, visited that area. Many famous people had stayed here at the building at least once, some of them multiple times, one of those being a silent film actress, Clara Bow, uh, who also was the inspiration for the Betty Boop character. Yeah, you had a Tom Mix, Tom Mix, white cowboy star. Cowboy film star, absolutely. The pilot, Charles Lindbergh. Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin. Renowned was, you know, comedian. And womanizer, I'm told. Yeah, that was part of the, the story that uh, some of the nearby locals would talk about that old Charlie Chaplin and his womanizing ways. <laughs> the gangster Al Capone, as well as the outlaw Jesse James and his brothers, who I read and researched are said to have worked with Mr. John Morse because of the... Uh, the Confederate uh, connections back in the Civil War days. Well, here with Al Capone, I have that he used it as a common rest house, but also as a speakeasy and a place for gambling. And that the police knew that you didn't go to that neck of the woods. That was controlled, and that was not a place where they were wanted. I heard that as well. And they were also fearful of the local moonshiners that was in and around that yeah, area. Yeah. Now, on that note with the gangster and the Al Capone days, um, I was I thought it was interesting. I found actually some newspaper clippings and stuff that was historical after the fact. But uh, Capone was bragging that uh, he served some great whiskey from the hotel there. Well, supposedly there's still uh, some, some bottles in the region that came from Capone. That's still up on the shelves around in the area, and they've held on to it all those years. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. And then it said the Morris Mill was actually is, is very popularly known that it never ran dry during the prohibition era because of al capone's connections there and and he kept the taps flowing for everybody that wanted anything now obviously with a place with a, such a checkered past you've got some good and some bad you know it was used as a confederate hospital uh might have been part of the what they call the secession railroad which was used to to funnel rebels back to the south and we touched upon, I think that was because that was actually associated in the research I did with the Jesse James uh, yeah. group uh, because Morris was a Confederate sympathizer. Like, like you said, hangings, an Indian burial, burial ground, but multiple murder scenes. Uh, apparently, it was home, the Morris, Morris Mill was home to Bertha Gifford for a while. Now, she was renowned for her cooking skills and taking care of sick neighbors and relatives. She'd make the rounds to go and visit with them. She acquired a reputation as an angel of mercy. And she would that. she would visit these family members, and then shortly thereafter, they would, would pass on to their final rest. Now, people started to get suspicious. Mm. It seemed pretty weird that both Bertha would go and visit these family members, and then they would pass. Of course, a lot of them were already close to dying. Uh, that prompted a grand jury investigation. Bertha was arrested in 1928 in Eureka, Missouri. And she was charged with three murders at that point in time. And I think the suspicion was five total, but they charged her with three. She was put in trial uh, in Union, Missouri. And following a three-day trial, she was found not guilty by reason of insanity. And she was committed to Missouri State Hospital Number 4 until she passed away in 1951. Now, it is believed that she could have killed between 17 and 23 people total, right. if not more. If not more. Because, again, a lot of these people were close to dying anyway. Uh, and apparently it was hard to track because her her method of choice was arsenic, 
which you'll hear, you know, Game of Thrones, you know, poison is a woman's weapon, mm-hmm. which I don't want to sound sexist or anything. I'm just, but apparently arsenic was her weapon of choice. She would put it in into chocolates. Apparently, she had killed children. I read that as well. Many I, children. I, I think here I, I have as many, maybe as many as 19. But again, it was hard to track down because arsenic was apparently available over the counter pretty commonly in at those that, days. It wasn't restricted. Yep. So it was hard to tell uh, exactly how many people she had killed. It was hard to track down. You know, there was no documentation of her buying the arsenic because it was just so common. Uh, apparently, she worked there at the hotel and she's buried nearby. As part of the current tour of the grounds, they'll actually take you to the graveyard where her and some of her victims were apparently laid to rest. I did find some speculation there that possibly she truly wasn't buried there. However, the headstone definitely yeah, says the, the that Yeah, the rumor is that she's not laid to rest there. I have to say, obviously we're trying to get our heads in the mind of a serial killer, but she, she tainted chocolates with arsenic for small children. This is like Hansel and Gretel kind of stuff. Well, I mean, this, this might sound horrible, but I've definitely been around a few kids every now and then. <laughs> I mean, I can almost Don't understand. Don't go there, Bill. Don't go there. <laughs> Come here, my precious. I've got a chocolate for you. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to resort to murdering kids, no matter how annoying they may be. I also read that she actually killed or suspect to killed her own husband. Well, she did have, uh, I think, three husbands, maybe, is what I read. One of them is supposed to be identified as a man that stands in the hallway as a ghost. uh, Yeah. We're talking about the hauntings. And he seems to be wearing, like, a trench coat. He's often spotted. Um, And still, there are noises and sounds that come from the kitchen that they believe could be Bertha Gifford in her hauntings of Morris Mill. Now, as far as the the hauntings go, you've got a, a list of paranormal activity. And I don't want to say they're they're common, but they seem to be things that you'd find in, in a lot of hauntings. Here I have hearing footsteps, black shadows, faces seen in mirrors, cold breezes where they don't belong, the piano in the living room playing on its own, orbs and mists, levitating objects, being touched by unseen hands, having air blown in your face. A couple that I felt really stood out to me that I found the most interesting. Uh, one group there said they were upstairs when they heard a, a strange screeching metal type sound. Ah, uh, yes. And when they went downstairs, found a fireplace poker twisted in a U shape. Yes. And then, uh, you know, you have a the shadow. There's a shadow person over nine feet tall that is apparently commonly seen. And then some people receive scratches, which scratches in in haunting lore. That's typically. That's dark stuff That's there. That's demonic, kind of. And I did read that most of the scratchings there seem to be three Yeah, fingers. three fingers. Three fingers. That was kind of a little interesting. You had mentioned the shadow figure, almost nine foot tall. I had read also, taking that a step further, as if that wasn't scary enough, that he, that person had a long flowing coat, or what some would explain as angelic wings in the shadow of the nine foot tall. I thought that was kind of creepy, especially. There's also a ghost child in particular they call Annabelle that is living in the attic, they believe. A lot of paranormal researchers have taken uh, small children's dolls, toys, balls, and left them for Annabelle. And there's been some footage and video caught of uh, the doll falling over, the ball rolling around, some different things like that. There's also, while he doesn't have a name that's given to him, there is a ghost uh, pre-Civil War time frame or of a slave that is often spotted in the basement. Um, and we'll touch on that a little bit later, but there's a cistern in the basement. And it is said that 
sometimes people were thrown down into the cistern. Uh, later on in Al Capone's days, somebody that had loose lips uh, might be cut up in pieces and thrown down in this cistern. There's also apparently a tunnel that connects Morris Mill to uh, and what was the ice house, which yes. I don't. Well, okay, Will, we're going to get into a little bit more of our, our, our own personal background here in a little bit. Yep, we'll talk about that tunnel in the cistern. But real quickly, there's also, I mean, you got to imagine all the things that we said this thing has been. But one of the common things they say that if you just go to the Morris Mill and you just try to be as quiet as you can, you can often hear a lot of laughing, music, dancing, which you can imagine all the people at a hotel. There would be all these different parties and different things. Sounds of a stagecoach and horses coming up to the front of the hotel, which, as I mentioned, it was a very common stagecoach stop, especially so close in proximity to, to St. Louis. Another one that I thought was really interesting is sweet smells like that of chocolates coming from the kitchen can often be smelled. Going back to Bertha, the, the serial killer. Now, of course, you're, you're probably asking yourself, why are we talking about all the history of this particular building, even, you know, with a little bit of haunting we touched on? And uh, Eric and I thought this would be a good one to pick because we have a personal history we with Moore's Mill. We actually did our own almost, well, you might as well say it was overnight ghost hunt. Yeah, we did an overnight ghost hunt there a few years ago. I don't remember exactly when at this point, but it was a while back. Yeah, six, seven years ago, probably. But to kind of set the stage, I want to say it was sort of this time of year, March, April, maybe. I remember it was cold. It was cold. There it was still was a little snow cold. on the ground. We got there in the afternoon. We talked to the current owner, Patrick Sheehan. Very nice gentleman. Uh, very nice. Very accommodating. He told us all about the property, uh, sort of laid out where we could go, where we couldn't. At the time, we paid $60 a head. And what we had, uh, it was... Um, me, my brother, and my sister, uh, Eric, you and your wife, and a mutual friend, and a couple of, and a couple of our other friends of ours. Yep. And uh, you know, we we talked to Patrick, and he told us a lot of these things. You know, where people had seen things, where they had experienced things, hot spots, if you will. The the stairways. He said to, the stairways were pretty pretty uh pretty common place to experience things and i might also say at that point, um, ghost hunters had already been here and filmed. We found out like. A month or two months before we were there, yeah. major renovation uh, was going on. Yeah, when we were there, there was uh, no no sheetrock on the walls. Yeah. yeah, literally open walls and you just you know exposed stud yeah. walls and stuff for the framing. But but he told us and and he he and on online in interviews that he didn't believe in any of this, even though supposedly he had almost witnessed some of these kinds of things. Yeah, I, I didn't get that part. He's like, yeah, I saw this, but I don't really believe it. Kind of. But thing. but again, we want to. You know, it was cold. It was a cold night. Oh my gosh, was it cold? Um, there was no power, so we had to rely on a on a fire in the basement. One of the things that should have tipped us off, in hindsight, I look back. He, we when we drove up to it, we pulled off the little highway. Um, he was actually had his pickup, and he was cutting some uh, had a chainsaw out and was cutting yeah. some wood. And he was very eager, and he's like, "Hey, I'll save some of this wood for you guys tonight because in the lower level of the basement there was actually a very nice uh, rock fireplace hearth and." You might want to use some of this tonight. Oh my gosh, the, that should have went off. Uh, well, the, to say we might wanted a fire was an understatement. To oh be sure. my gosh, I've never been so cold in my life. But you know, we we spent a night here, 
in the I would say the bottom part of the house where the fireplace is. That's probably the original house. That was the safest, warmest place and, to be. And it was definitely <laughs> well, it was the only place that was heated in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. And again, the house wasn't really insulated at that point in time. All the sheetrock was down. Yes. I mean, there was gaps you could see outside yes. in certain places. Uh, we, me and my brother and sister, we staked out the, the attic for a while and yeah, you could kind of look along the eaves and kind of just see look the outside. Outdoor. And to say you could see your breath, that, that doesn't even touch it. I well, mean, it was frigid. And, and when cold. we first got there, it wasn't that bad, of course, but as the night crept on, was it when we left, which I want to say was three o'clock ish. Yeah. yeah we had pretty well frozen. <laughs> yeah. It was like, yeah, we're calling it. We're freezing to death. I remember we were huddled uh, together around that fireplace. We were we were taking rounds. Uh, that way we, we didn't contaminate someone else's research. Because, again, with the walls and stuff exposed, we, we were very leery of that. We wanted to be very careful of it. So, literally, there would be, like, groups of two or three that would go and do their various investigations. Like Bill had said, uh, I think you and your brother and your sister went up to the attic. So, everybody else stayed downstairs around that fireplace. And it was very nice because we I, – I remember I literally – started melting the rubber soles <laughs> off of my shoes because it was so oh, cold. We, we couldn't get close enough to that fire. Oh, I wanted to crawl inside of it. It was horrible. It was it was so cold. But uh, obviously there's been a lot of renovation since then. I think he's he's insulated the walls and all that. So and we don't want to... Six, we don't seven wanna, years ago. Yeah, yeah, we don't want to deter anybody. I, I think he still offers the, the overnight stays and things like that. The price may have gone up a little since we were there. Yeah, but we we don't want to deter anybody. Like, like I definitely I said, want to go back. Uh, he wants to open it up as a bed and breakfast with with obviously the theme that it's going to be haunted, whether mm-hmm. he believes in that or not. Now, a couple of things while we were there. One, one of the places that he said was the most active, there was sort of a little workshop on the first floor. And he had motion-sensitive alarms there. He said those alarms went off all the time. <laughs> and he'd always have to go out and reset those alarms. And it was like the one room that he told us was off limits. Yeah, don't go in there. So the one place where there might be something happening, and it was like, don't go there. Yeah, don't go in there. <laughs> now, we had mentioned the cistern room, which was down basically in the basement area. Um, that was an area we were able to go to. Now, it's got a large capstone, if you will. And I don't remember the exact size of the opening. I want to say it was probably four foot in diameter is a very large capstone concrete um, that it would take a lot of work to get off. But that led down to the cistern. That was the room with the, the chained. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's it. Now, for those of you who may not know what a cistern is, it's normally, uh, at least around this area, it's a hole that is dug to retain runoff water, um, similar to that of a well, but however, it doesn't necessarily have a source. It's just a containment area. Um, a lot of those are around like old abandoned houses and stuff. And there's been some deaths and different things that are attributed to this. Cause especially in the rural Ozark area, you might go out and you find this old house and maybe you want to do a ghost hunt or whatever. And you're walking in behind that area kind of grows up. And sometimes they would literally just put some old timbers or something over the hole. Obviously that would rot. People could fall down in it. Um, but this particular cistern, uh, they are saying is somewhere in the vicinity of 22 foot deep kind of put this into perspective some of the people they interviewed that still lives around the area and, and they grew up around this area so now they're in their 60s maybe even 70s they remember as children that cistern was open and they actually remember and we touched on this a bit ago it was open and there's a cave a tunnel whatever i don't yeah. know if it's man-made or, or possibly natural that led to an ice house, as Bill had mentioned, that it was down there on the big river, which was under the road and across 
that these kids remember these now adults, but the, as kids, they used to play in those tunnels. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Now, Patrick had mentioned in future renovations, he does plan on opening that up. Now, that has been walled up to make sure nobody can come well, up through that way. He, he did say there were a couple of stories from people who had been working down there. Well, he had somebody working down there, and then he heard the guy shout at him to get his attention. He went over to the, the opening, and he's like, hey, did you throw something at me? I do and, remember that. And yeah. Patrick was like, no, nah, man, I, I was, forgot about that. Yeah, I was over here doing whatever. And he's like, well, apparently the guy felt as if he'd had like a rock thrown at him, hit him in the back. And he was the only one down there. Well, and again, you don't know exactly what happened and what doesn't. Uh, but one of the things that I read about is, especially during the mobster days, that was kind of a disposal dumping ground, if you will. Um, you know, Al Capone was obviously there, even going back further, Civil War time frame. Um, you know, it was Civil War time frame. You had the North and the South constantly trying to take over different areas. But there was there's rumors, uh, legends that bodies were thrown down into that hole or, or chopped up pieces, uh, as it may be. So when they do get around to opening that up, there's no telling what they may find actually yeah. down there <laughs> in another season to come, possibly. But I know our our personal, you know, experience. Now, from my point of view, I found it to be sort of fairly disappointing. I, I I'm someone who's been fascinated with this stuff from as long as I could read. We talked about that in our little trailer episode, and and I've always wanted to experience something that I considered paranormal or supernatural or whatever. Right. And I've had a couple things that you could say were close, like right on the edge of like, maybe I can explain this. Maybe I can't, but nothing I ever felt was definitive. I was under the impression that going to Morris mill, that was going to be the day. And Eric and I have deferring opinions on the things we encountered that night where I'm not super convinced that that was the day for me. Right. But I know that there were some incidents and, and I'll let Eric talk about a little, those a little bit, but I mean, definitely being there and just the sense of history and, and the fact that it was this fascinating old building. It has feelings. Like, There's definitely and, an energy. And yeah, it, being in some of those rooms, which I think at the time, a lot of those rooms were decorated with like thrift shop finds that were appropriate for the, the era. So like in the living room, there's an old piano, and then there's there's stuff on the walls and, and the stuff on the tables, which all looks appropriate for the time. And some relatively close and stuff as well, yeah. But even going upstairs where the rooms are unfinished, you know, the, like I said, there's no sheet rock. You could just step through the wall into each room. Literally, yeah. Um, a lot of those, I, I think the openness of maybe is, is part of what kind of took away from the experience, maybe. And I would agree with that statement. I mean, um, as Bill has said, we, we do this all for different reasons. Uh, I had mentioned, I think, in one of my previous podcasts, I had a... It was basically a near-death experience in a hospital surgery where later on I was pronounced dead on the operating table. And I had a little uh, thing that happened there that uh, I didn't feel any you know, fear or anything. I was very much at peace, to be quite honest. But that I'd always had an interest in it beforehand, but that really set things in motion where I wanted to understand. I wanted to experience it myself. Um I, I, I can't say I've been on a lot of ghost hunts. I've been on easily probably 20 or more uh, amateur ghost hunts. We've went and visited uh, the Pythian Castle in Springfield, which might also be a future podcast. Uh, we did the Morse Mill, several different locations. But one of the things that I took away from this particular 
ghost hunt at Morris Mill um, that that Bill and I kind of will agree to disagree kind of thing on. <laughs> the, the flashlight the experience. The flashlight experience. Uh, some of you may be saying, oh, yeah, I already know what they're talking about. You, you will take, we had like a small mag light. Uh, this would be one of those that you would screw the, the end to turn it off and on and, and the various different illuminations. That is kind of a typical test that a lot of ghost hunters use. And I had used it multiple times at multiple sites. Never got anything, uh, nothing. Um, one of our mutual friends, Tim, and I happened to be up, I can't remember, I want to say it was the third floor. Uh, is one of the bedrooms. Wasn't it regarded as the uh, prostitute's room, I think, yes. is the way it's labeled? Yes, it is actually, that's correct. It was labeled as kind of the, one of the prostitutes, the main prostitute's room. And we were just doing our normal investigation. And again, kind of going back, everyone else is downstairs in the basement well below us. Uh, but we went up and we thought, well, let's let's try this flashlight test. So you basically set the flashlight up where it's just at the point where it could turn on, but it is off. We set it on... Um, I believe it was a bed that was there and we started asking some questions. Nothing happened immediately. Uh, to be honest, we were kind of the fact, okay, yeah, once again, this, this is not going to work. And then just probably, I want to say five minutes into it, about the time we gave up, I can't remember if it was Tim or I, we, we asked, started asking a question, you know, are you so-and-so, uh, is there anyone here? And the flashlight blinks on and we're like, Oh, Hey, that's cool. That's the first time that's happened. <laughs> and so then we started asking more specific questions. You know, blink twice, for example, if you're a female. And we did that on purpose because it was a female prostitute's room. And, you know, blink once if it's a male because we thought, okay, well, you know, one blink, it's, you know, but if it blinks twice, hey, that might be something. Sure enough, it blinks twice. Um, at that time we'd done some research, uh, we'd read and everything. And I think we even had a name and we asked, okay, blink twice. If this is your name again, trying to get away from the single blink, boom, boom. I mean, right on cue, Tim and I, we spent probably the next 10 minutes literally just asking random questions and right on cue, there was seconds of pause and that was it. And then it's like, oh my gosh, this is really happening. This is this is working. This is really cool. So one of us stayed and the other one went downstairs to get the rest of the group because we wanted, we were recording it, but we wanted everyone to be able to experience this. And I believe I was the one that stayed up there. And I will say not only was the hair on the back of my neck standing up because it was cold, but it was kind <laughs> of, it was kind of exciting, you know, that something had done. And again, I, I have to stress, I had used this technique many times, never had anything, but what was really cool. I'm thinking in the back of my mind. Yeah. We're going to get everybody up here. It's going to make a total fool of me. It's not going to blink a single time. And I think we got everybody up and everybody at least did witness it. Now it, it started to die down. It wasn't happening as frequent. And then eventually kind of faded off yeah, the same all, way it started. We all got to see it. But now, of course the science of it, I would argue that, that, I mean, I, I feel that maybe there's a possible explanation, but yeah, you know, I don't want to. One could, one could say, and, and well, I'm very open. I want to say that, that, you know, obviously metal expands and contracts. And hot or cold. Hot or cold. But I think you guys did some experiments after the fact. We tried to replicate home. it. We could not. Yeah. We even so. went back to that room later that night. 
couldn't replicate it. Well, I mean, like way after the fact, like after I had kind of said, well, this is what I think happened. Yes. Hot and cold. And then you guys tried to do it like in the freezer or whatever or something. Yep. And again, it was so cold that night. I, oh my gosh, I, I cannot stress how cold it was. And that wasn't like our first room. It wasn't like we were down well, there in the fireplace and then ran upstairs. I, I think the common descriptor that we've used over the years is it was cold enough to lose a particular body part if you're a man. So, <laughs> And on that point, there was no indoor plumbing, of course. <laughs> so another funny tale, there was an outhouse, a porta potty that was put out there. And it was quite the challenge... I have to go to the bathroom, but do you really have to go to the bathroom? Yeah, you had to make a choice. You, it wasn't that important. <laughs> and then it was like, okay, buddy system, let's race out there. And you <laughs> thought it was cold in the house. When you got outside, it was even colder. Yeah, we won't go into the details, but it was very cold. That's the thing. Like, we we picked, man, I mean, we, we picked the worst possible oh weekend. Oh, my gosh. It seems like. I mean, it was cold. We, if we'd have waited a month, it wouldn't have been as bad. And again, I go back to Patrick. You might want to use some of this firewood. I'll leave some for you. Thank God. We yeah. would have froze to death. We literally. were bundled up in coats and, and had, you know. But back to kind of our firsthand, you know, while we were there. We had some other things that occurred that night. That was just one of the highlights, if you will. We had the, the motion lights that would be there on the steps. We had those, if I remember, they were we, we set the motion light up at the bottom of the steps. And several times... Um, it was the steps that was behind us as we were there by the fireplace. Several times the motion lights would just go off. Now we tried to simulate this. We obviously you could walk by it and it would go off. That's the purpose. But we, it was, it was very yeah, nobody strange. Nobody would be moving. Nobody would be even on that top floor. I mean, we're way above that. See that I can vouch for because, because we, we left that light set up the whole time. And, and you know, when you were down there, you were just by the fire. You weren't moving. You were just trying to get warm. Yeah. <laughs> and then that, that light, I mean, we tried, like, if you were moving around by the fire, it wouldn't go off. Right. You you weren't close enough to trigger it. Was it was probably 15 foot away or so. And it was simulating, the best we could kind of describe it to you folks listening would be like someone was maybe passing the top of the stairway on the yeah. floor up above. Well, and, and, and that's it. what Patrick said. He said, you know, according to all the stories, you would encounter the most activity around the stairwells for some reason. So we had the motion light that pretty well went off and on all night long. All night, yeah. Uh, that was pretty well a constant. I know um, you you had mentioned you'd went up in the attic. Sarah and I spent some time up in the attic, my wife uh, as well. I believe one of us had brought a couple toys. We did try to simulate that. We did not have any luck with that, personally. Well, me and my brother and sister did quite a, a quite long EVP session that didn't really, it didn't bear any fruit for us. And again, um, we try to be very scientific about a lot of the stuff. As Bill mentioned, even up in the attic, and I remember this, you could look out... And the highway, rural highway, is not, I mean, it's within distance. And you could see outside through yeah, the Yeah, on our recordings, and, you could hear traffic nearby exactly. rolling by. That's uh, reviewing the pictures that I took. I, I found a, had a picture in the, the main sitting room that showed what I thought was a pair of eyes through the window. But then on, on hindsight, I realized, of course, the angle of the picture was actually there was a gravel road on the other side of the river. And so I believe I had just captured a pair of taillights, which is why I never made a big deal about it, because it was so easy to debunk that as a pair of taillights through the window. It wasn't even worth mentioning. Now, of course, when I initially saw the picture, you know. Got a little excited. Got got, got a little excited and made my hair stand on end. Because, again, red eyes peeking through the window at you. 
that's a thing. That's that's scary. <laughs> I, I don't know a lot of people remember the Amityville horror movie, the old one, but that's one of the scariest scenes in that one to me is when the eyes are looking at him through the window. And again, with all the most of the walls, if not all, you know, being exposed basically to the stud framing, it does play tricks on you. I mean, you could have something obviously 40, 50 foot away that could shine through all the walls because you don't have the lath and the plaster or sheetrock or anything up. So it did kind of hamper our personal investigation, I felt, a little bit. It was too easy to explain away anything that we caught, you know, that was unexplained. And again, I, I think if you looked at, uh, like, what he's done, I think he insulated the walls very thoroughly to try to maybe cut down on interference through the walls. Now, while we were there, I did make note. We did have a few things that was kind of what I call common stuff. We... Uh, we did have a door that creaked open uh, in one particular case. But again, you have to consider, you know, multi-hundred-year-old home. Things are going to happen. Again, wind could be blowing through. So it was stuff that was pretty easily dismissed. We did not personally, I'm, I did not personally hear any of the laughter, the dancing, no. the music. It didn't have any of that. No. There was of, a lot of noises. I think one of our fellow investigators did experience what he described as sort of a moment of vertigo, which unfortunately he ended up being, you know, as a medical condition that it became aware of later on that may have explained that. So Right, right. I mean, it was, uh, it was an experience, to say the least, and... I don't know. Now that it's getting closer to completion, it might be worth going again. But as far as a dollars and cents kind of conversation goes, it's it's a little more expensive now than it used to be. It is a little bit more pricey. He's done a lot of renovations. You know, uh, he's made it a lot better. Um, I think he. I, you you could go to the website. He has a website. You'll be able to yeah. find it. Morris Mill and get all the details. Well, and some of the history that we covered today is is listed there. Right. Um, I think it's a, a minimal group that they try to put together. I want to say a dozen people or something is really kind of the target that they and try to do. Most paid locations that you can do this kind of thing at do require sort of a minimum group size or at least a, a certain amount of money. Like, okay, we're going to charge you 70 bucks a head if you get 12 people, but you still have to pay the 70 bucks for 12 people even if you only have 10. Right, right. So, and I mean, that's that's how they make their money. I, I believe that's, I mean, he flat out told us that was how he was remodeling. That's the how place. he's making the, the renovations. Money, the money he was getting from, from folks like us. You know, and regardless, it is a really historic place that has a lot of energy. Uh, there's definitely, there's, there's a lot there. I want to personally go back. I what? very much would love to go back. I think back. they do, uh, right now, if I remember the website correctly, they do something like a, a ghost tour. I mentioned that where you can tour and they take you past the graveyard and all that. And then they do uh, guided tours with local paranormal groups. And then they also do the overnights. But like we said, with the overnights, I think it's like a minimum of certain number of people or dollar value. I mean, again, it was an experience. I, I don't think that I would pay to go back, but that's just my own take on it. Again, I, I thought I, I was looking for more that day and, sure. and didn't experience what I was, well, was hoping. And we've talked. Um, of course, there's a lot of ghost hunter shows and stuff out there. Bill and I have talked a lot through the years. Let's face it. Ghosts don't care about our time frame. Ghosts don't play on cue. Well, that's, you know, so we talk about that constantly. The shows like Ghost Hunters where they run into something every time they go. Yeah. Realistically, that's not going to happen. No, I, I have gotten one what I really call definitive photo in the years that I've done it. Like I said, I've probably done 20 ghost hunts or I something. I think we'll. We'll talk about that on a later episode. That's at so. the Pythian Castle. But yeah. yeah, I got a wonderful photograph there. I've I've got some shadow figures I've gotten. I, I think 
part of the problem with with our particular visit to Morris Mill was simply the season that we chose to go. Well, we were the definitely condition of the renovation. We were definitely preoccupied with our own personal condition maybe, which we were freezing maybe we missed some stuff <laughs> because we were more let's try to survive the night from not freezing to death well it was an overnight visit like i said we left like two three o'clock because it was just so cold we, we just got to the point where we're done we seriously we, we froze didn't out. want to stay yeah we froze out and it's like yeah we could have stayed till six or seven um yeah i had no problem with that but it was just like we can't we can't handle it anymore it's yeah, just it entirely so cold, cold. <laughs> so you know there's a part of me that's like one, the history buff in me, I, did, I want to go back. I want to see what Patrick's done with the place. But I, I think we could have missed some things just because the, the climate, the season that, that we happened to go in. Um, All right, Eric, you got me convinced. If you'll pay for it, I'll. <laughs> <laughs> when I win that lottery, hey, I got we're admit, going. I do a lot of stuff if somebody else would pay for it. <laughs> but anyhow, Morris Mill, just outside of St. Louis, um, a very historic place. And if And if you're looking it up, the name is uh, in the process of changing. I think Patrick's calling it the Blue Lady now. The Blue Lady. So, and I might also add, it's Morse. Morse. M O R S E, not Morris, like the feline cat Morris. It's Morse Mill, just outside of St. Louis. Um, while we didn't necessarily have anything super uh, substantial, I did like the flashlight ordeal. I'll throw that back in there again. Definitely, I think worth a visit. Uh, very cool place. This is just another example of something that you might find with uh, our tales that we tell on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I would like to thank uh, Alex Tudor, who has been helping us uh, a lot uh, with our endeavors on this podcast. You can call him our producer at this point, I think. Our producer, electronic recording technician. Uh, um, he's uh, the one that's setting up all the mics and the hardware in the background. And then Bill Weirs is going through taking his time to try to clean and edit this up and uh, give us the best possible version that we can present to you folks. want to thank everybody involved with that.